The show where we subject Gossip Girl and Friday Night Lights to a level of scrutiny they definitely deserve. Uh, here to Zuckerberg it with me is Ryan Sheely, and I'm Matt Rather. Hey, Ryan. I, I prefer to say it's doing the Zuckerberg. Like, it's like a dance move or something like that, which is just like, I don't know. It's like you're, I don't know, reaching your hands into other people's pockets or something like that. Like, um, do, oh, the, yeah. do the Zuckerberg. No, I mean, the thing, the thing about Facebook is that they don't have to steal anything. People just put their stuff on there. Yeah. For free. You know, I yeah. read uh, – and already, already 20 seconds in and I'm digressing. But uh, I read a um, – Well, it's kind of it's kind of like Gossip Girl. Go ahead. <laughs> I read a, uh, a post about technology on the internet the other – on that uh, information net the other day. And it was, um, it was called Don't Give Your Users Shit Work. And the, the, uh, the idea was that, like, a lot of web services that are centered around user-generated content expect you to do a lot of the heavy lifting of, like, putting all your stuff in and then, like, categorizing your friends into, you know, subgroups of friends so that they can capitalize on that and, like, advertise to those people in appropriate ways, you know? Uh, right? Like, you're supposed to – you're really supposed to, like, um, put all your Twitter people into Twitter lists. Do you use Twitter lists? I do not. Yeah, I do me not. neither. So it's uh, – oh, I guess – you know what I do? I have one uh, – I just want the food trucks in Los Angeles, I, and I want to filter everything else out. So it's true. I guess I do have one Twitter list. But it's not like I'm going to like, you know, friends, you know. Well, this is like Google Plus, right? Google Plus is like explicitly built on that structure, yeah, right? It's Now, you can't add someone on Google Plus without adding them to a circle. So they've at least kind of killed two birds with one stone. Yeah. Uh, with it, but like, I don't know. It's, it's, um, I mean, they know Facebook knows so much. You think they could do all that stuff. Do you remember in the very early days of Facebook back in the glory days when it was just the Ivy league where, uh, you could, it would auto generate a a graphic representation of all your friends and who was friends with who. Yes. Yes. They were like nodes around a circle and there were lines, colored lines connecting the nodes, the colors. It's like, it's a social network. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like a social graph. Um, if you will. And, uh, oh, how did that come up? Don't give your users, don't give your users shit work. Oh yeah. Facebook. Everyone seems so eager to spend all their time, like padding, padding their Facebook profiles and, and things like this, sharing things on Facebook. I'm not sure what you get out of putting a list of your favorite books on Facebook. Have you ever gotten a Facebook message from somebody that it's like, Hey, I see you like catcher in the rye. You know, well, that's this, it's, it's this kind of expressive utility, right? That it's it's you're trying to kind of create a it, it's that's the same kind of instrumental utility that you get from I don't know, um, um, you know, wearing a T-shirt with the band name on it or whatever. It's a, you you want to at least say it, it, like it's like it's almost like the fact that people might pay attention is enough. Right, that um, that you get to kind of craft this this public image, even if no one's looking at it. I guess so. uh, I mean, like that's that's essentially the pitch that Elizabeth Hurley makes to Serena about doing yeah. the blog on the New York Spectator site. That is to say, like you've been a subject, uh, or sorry, you've been an object of other people's subjectivity so so uh, long. Why, don't you want to be a subject also? Don't you want to kind of control the narrative? Um, by writing which is which is interesting because i feel like you know i mean it's so odd that that is that 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 is the pitch because um really where you know throughout the whole series what we see is that what um serena and and blair do is is you know you strategically i mean yes i guess they are like um, everyone is sending things about them to Gossip Girl, but like they are also. I mean, I think Serena makes this point herself that they also all send things to Gossip Girl, and they like, and there is like a kind of creation of that end product, right? Because like Gossip Girl, as we've discussed, has this this uh, has a code of ethics, um, and uh, you know 
the uh, you know there's the 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 pick pick or it didn't happen. Uh, the you know it's the the kind of uh, you you sent us in our back channel. There's the the four chan um, discourse about what constitutes like a fact or what constitutes something having. Uh, had happened. Um, like this, I mean, we we sort of talk about forchanic discourse on overthinking it a lot, and we we do it in the other podcast too. But um, like every every discourse needs rules about what constitutes a statement in that discourse, and right and like uh, um, and they're defined more or less explicitly depending on how really depending on how fair the discourse is designed to be. Right, the legal system, which is supposed to everyone is is theoretically supposed to have equal yeah, equal access to, is you know it's nailed down into like an inch of its life, into the font size and the you know how many lines go between how many blank lines go between each you know word, uh, right? Like it's it's nailed down to that level, and in kind of less formal or less fair social discourses, um, the, the rules about what constitutes a statement is. Um, uh, are are a little more vague, like who sits where on the the uh, on the Met steps. You just have to know. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I God, it's a day of digressions. I forget where I was where I was jumping off from. Oh, right. Gossip Girl has has more or less uh, established what the set of what the set of rules are. So Gossip Girl kind of functions as a as a public service. You know. Right. Right. And like, if you had to put, um. If you had to to like write a statement of values for Gossip Girl, you know, what, what, what do you think? It, I mean, what do you think Gossip Girl, like, our core values, right, exactly. Mission. If you, to, if you had to write a mission statement beyond like your one and only uh, source into the, the scandalous lives of Manhattan's elite source, right? Um, I was searching for that word. But Gossip Girl seems to be pro what and anti what. Huh. And, Anti-hypocrisy, I think, right? Anti-secrecy. Yeah, and and also anti... Oh, what? Kind of... um, Oh, what's what's the right word? Um, Kind of, I guess, you know, against, um, you know, pretending to be one thing. And this kind of, like... um, I guess it is. It's, it's a side of secrecy, but it's about in the presentation of yourself and who you are, sure. right? That that that. Um, and 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 uh, you know, I guess it's it's really like articulation day on here on the TFT podcast. We're both we're both nailing it. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, like uh, uh, like <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> So, so right. Like, um, do you think Gossip Girl is a, is a force for democracy? That is to say, if Gossip Girl had Gossip Girl's way, do you think it would like it would be French Revolution time and and uh, heads would roll? Or I, no, Gossip Girl derives a lot of the the power that she has uh, by sort of piggybacking on the celebrity or on the kind of limited celebrity, which is something that I want to talk about. Um, the limited celebrity of the people that she talks about, right? Well, I think that's I think that that's right. It's that if like for Gossip Girl to exist, there has to be there. there some people have to be more in, intrinsically interesting than others, right? Um, but at the same time, then everyone has a, plays a role in in some ways holding them accountable, right? So that Gossip Girl is pro accountability. Um, okay. Uh, and that there is some set of standards of of who people are or ought to be. So there's almost like you know it's it is <laughs> in some ways it's like you know to to use the Jenny Humphrey example that you know it is her tell us to go wild. Sure. Um, and and when and and sort of when she is not um, on that trajectory or is is not playing that that role. Um, you know, she is, or is, or is not, is held accountable for that, right? So that a lot of things that come out through Gossip Girl are people are trying to, you know, move in in one direction or another, whether that is in kind of these micro maneuverings with specific, specific relationships or these like larger directions about who they are and what they are doing, right. and kind of, you know, Gossip Girl. Um, takes those private actions and makes them public, and and once they are in the public sphere, then 
they certain things become less possible if that makes sense right so that people are kind of constrained they're they're acting as public figures right so that it is it's this kind of it's not democratic but it is a it's an aristocracy that has a slightly different um it's a populist it's a populist aristocracy um can you unpack that a little bit Sure. Um, and that, you know, the uh, – or I guess because – so in some ways the sources of legitimacy of this aristocracy are in part in here in the people who pay attention to them. Right. Right? That, that like the, 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 the worst thing that could happen for these people um, and for Gossip Girl is for people to stop caring. Sure. Um, and, and I that's mean, kind of what's happened to Serena, it seems like, right? Yeah. Like both in terms of the show, the attention that she gets from the writers in terms of like crafting interesting plot lines for her. And also, you know, um, what's happened to her socially in the in within the world of the show, in the in the diegesis of the show. Right. Like that, um, uh, that no one gives a rat's ass about her. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I think that in some sense, like. Her having a blog for the uh, the spectator, uh, like, just confirms that. I mean, already, like, how how lame is that? Like, that that's that's like obvious. It's like that is you know, it's it's clear that um, Elizabeth Hurley's character is that that the aim of this blog is not exactly like there's some ulterior motive here um, that because. No one would read that blog unless, you know, like, because, like, Serena, I don't believe that Serena is going to be, you know, I I can just see this as propaganda. It's like the blog that's, like, created by a political candidate who is just kind of, you know, um, you know, like... It's it's like Rick Perry coming out saying, "Of course, I meant to not name all, th- not be able to name three government agencies." Um, haha, I'm Rick Perry. Um, you know, like it, it's very edited. I'm Rick Perry, right? bitch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Texas is a hell of a state. Uh, well, the, I mean, the idea of these people who have jobs, you know what I mean? It's it's such a kind of a grotesque parody of employment, you know. Um, and and they they talk about losing the way they talk about losing their jobs it's like you know i don't know they're underwater on their mortgage it's like they're actually part of the 99% right the uh <laughs> uh when when you have a job right and you're not uh you know an american aristocrat with uh, more wealth than scrooge mcduck the uh you don't need a job right the the market kind of generates more money for you uh, that's the way it's set up, but but these are guys who are like Serena was you know seemed a little whiny about like I, I'm gonna lose my job, you know. Uh, and when you think of when you think of jobs as self actualization, yeah, I mean I yeah. thought like I thought Nate was most in his element in this episode uh, when he was walking through the New York Spectator office giving directions to an underling who by the way looked older than him. Uh, to, for where to put like the DJ booth and where to put the bar for the party. Like DJ booth bar goes over here, bam, and we're done. And then he goes into bone Elizabeth Hurley on her desk. Yeah. Cause well, it's like, you know, if, if like there's anything that Nate knows, like uh, it's where the DJ booth and bar go because every week um, everyone that he knows gets together in a place that has a DJ booth and a bar um, and many, many true things are revealed about them. Probably, I mean, probably more than once, once a week, like really like actually in that set, the, the charity events and the, yeah. the social obligations do get to be a bit of a grind, you know? And I know like, Oh, you know, poor people, you know, sitting there, you know, munching on canapes. But imagine, you know, force feeding yourself foie gras for actually that sounds pretty. That's, that's, I, that, well, it's also kind of like ironic. It's ironic. Uh, 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 was it uh, ironic, unfortunate or um, strangely, strangely apropos, apropos uh, being force fed foie, foie gras? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I think that falls under strangely apropos. Strangely apropos, right? It's it's actually it's happening at all the parties, you know, in the Dumbo neighbor. I don't know where where do the hipsters live, Ryan? I mean, Williamsburg is so over, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I mean, 
we we talked about this uh two weeks ago i have no idea yeah like you know uh uh no matter how much no matter how much you read the vulture blog yeah exactly well well, vulture blog is a different um slightly different beast um let's well let's hold off on that because i think there's a topic here on like new york media culture uh because this is uh because the the event here is bringing together the like Upper East Siders with the like New York media movers and shakers, uh, and I think there's some overlap in those in, the, in those Venn diagrams, but I don't think it's it's one to one, right? There's a lot of the media establishment who are not these, um, who are who are not uh, the force-fed every night. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, I think there's like, one maybe point of overlap is that you know. I don't know if it'd be interesting to at some point look at these shows, but like you see a little bit of interesting um, lenses onto this on the like the the family of shows that that Laguna Beach uh, spawned, sure. um, and specifically you see this on less in in on the hills, but more on the city, which was the New York based spinoff yeah. um, of of the hills. Um, and there's a character, or there's a character on this. Show. I mean, there is a character, <laughs> like uh, a, a socialite named Olivia Palermo plays a character named Olivia Palermo uh, on on the city. Um, a and social, a socialite and now actress, I suppose we have to say. Is she is oh yeah but you mean is she playing a role other than herself or is she No 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 but uh, I think in playing herself she becomes an actress I think that's right um and I just I remember very clearly there's a there's a scene um in which she's talking to her cousin um and and he's like and it's like the middle of the day uh they're both just like hanging out at her apartment he's like yeah i'm thinking of getting a job and she's like yeah i think it would be really good to have something to do um and, <laughs> and that's what having a job is in in that set um so and you know i started i started listening to a um I started listening to uh, Dan Ariely's uh, The Upside of Irrationality on an audiobook that I downloaded from the Waffles. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that, you know, I may have downloaded from the Waffles because we don't condone things like that. And, you mean uh, that you bought from audible.com? Yeah, after, exactly. After hearing an ad on uh, This American Life? Right. <laughs> I am. Um, and so they, he describes an experiment, uh, a, a behavioral economics experiment in which um, – uh, that has to do with with incentives and and disincentives to perform tasks and to perform them well. Mm-hmm. So uh, the idea is that the the task that the uh, subject engages in is putting together a robot out of Tinker Toys or Legos or something like that. Um, there's a kit and you build a robot, right? Uh, they're called, they have a name. They have a cutesy name for the robot. And for your first robot, you're paid $2. For your second robot, you're paid $1.80. For your third robot, you're paid $1.60 and so on with the financial incentive, um, with the financial incentive, uh, uh, declining at every stage. You with me so far? Have I? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. So, so the subject comes in, um, and they're put into uh, one of two groups uh, randomly. And the first group is uh, you get the instructions. Here's, here's your task. Here's the financial incentives. for You can build these robots until you decide it's, it's not worth it to build them anymore. Um, and a- after that, we'll pay you the amount of money that you uh, have earned by, by building robots. You know, two bucks for the first, a dollar eighty for the second, and so on. Um, and when we, uh, and when you're done, I'm going to take all the robots apart so we, that we can put them together for the next, uh, for the next person. And so, outcome like twenty robot kits, or I guess ten would be the maximum before the the money goes to zero. Yeah. And um, and so they, you know, they build robots, right? And they build. I don't know, seven or eight robots, and then, and then decide to stop. Now, in the second uh, experimental condition, there are only two kits. And while the subject is uh, – the rules are the same, but while the subject is building the last uh, – building the next robot, the experimenter is disassembling the just-completed robot. So they see there's kind of a futility condition built into the experiment. Does that make sense? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. one, so so financial incentives are the same. Knowledge that the robots are going to be disassembled at the end uh, are the same, but in the second experimental condition, you see them. Uh, you see them disassemble. They, they, you see them taking apart the robot. And there's and, and in there's the never one, an, in the yeah, first there's one, never an army of robots sitting right, there. In the first one, you see an army of robots growing before you, and so the. Um, uh, this is something that a guy named Viktor Frankl, who is a psychoanalyst who was in the concentration camps in, in World War II, wrote a book about. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning and, and pioneered kind of a, I guess it's kind of a minor tributary of psychoanalysis called logotherapy. That is to say, therapy directed at meaning and the meaning of life. Uh, and, you know, he hypothesized that, that uh, the drive, a fundamental drive in life is to feel like what you're doing is worth a damn uh, or that, you know, your life has meaning, capital M meaning. Meaning, uh, you know, at the broadest level, and that um, this seems to be borne out by by the experiment, where when you're engaged in in something that feels futile, that feels like it's just it's not really affecting the world, um, you're going to be uh, uh, disincentivized to do it. And the the uh, the second group, the the futility group, um, uh, I think produced three and a half fewer robots uh, on average than the um, uh, than the uh, first group did. So, you know, there is something to that, right? That, like, work is work. We, we work in order to have something to do. You we know? work in order to work. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that, like, um, now that so many of our, our basic needs are accounted for, I think you can, like, I guess evolutionary psychology got to be a very bad, uh, a very bad word, um, especially with feminists, because it, it ends up being code for, it, it ends up being code for like traditional gender roles are hard coded into our biology. And I don't mean it in that way, but I mean that like, um, we, we are still more or less the animals that, you know, that we were 10,000 years ago. Right. And, but our effort now is not directed at finding food and shelter, you know, at very meaningful, uh, at very meaningful tasks. At best, our effort is directed at a very abstracted, highly abstracted proxy for those tasks in terms of, you know, doing work on a computer for which you get a paycheck direct deposited into your bank account at the end of the week, you know, and the, uh, right, the, the management company, like, you know, gets an electronic funds transfer from that. Like, you don't even, you know, you don't even have the satisfaction of handing over uh, good old-fashioned American greenbacks anymore, you know, it's, it's, right. all, it's all notional. Um, at least it is, I mean, depending on how technological you are with your paycheck and stuff like this. So, uh, so th- these drives, these sort of fundamental drives to do something meaningful uh, is, is subverted into, um, well, into keeping busy. You know what I mean? Into a, into a kind of desperation to be of use. And I, could, I could understand a sort of existential depression that a Serena Vanderwoodson might have uh, about her life, right? Well, and you see this, I think, uh, I mean, as you, it's interesting that you kind of bring this up with reference to, to Serena in reaction to the anecdote about um, Olivia Palermo and her, her cousin. Right. But, I think that you actually see this in some sense throughout this entire episode of Go- of Gossip Girl, um, and I, I felt like this this episode ended on a somewhat somber um, note. Um, Chuck leaving the the diamond at Harry Winston. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, what was that? Was he just throwing it away, and he I, decided I, to leave it in front of a diamond store? Like, why not throw it away in the park? Why not throw it away in front of Momofuku? You know, why not? Why? Uh, why throw it away in front of Harry Winston? Well, that's where he got it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's. I mean, right? I mean, in some ways, it's it's him taking the robot apart, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I suppose, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that's it's the version of the robot where it's not only do, like, you watch the person dissemble the robot, but you have to, you build the robot and then you, like, murder the robot. Yeah, and then you have to take it apart. That would be a very interesting experiment, too, right, as a third condition. Like, if you had to disassemble the robot yourself and then rebuild it from scratch, you know, yeah, I bet that, yeah. would, that would induce even more, uh, I mean, even less motivation uh, in, the, in the subjects. 
Well, I think that's, I mean, right? Because I feel like that is, like, Chuck has now finished disassembling the robot of his love for Blair, which he will now have to put back together over some amount of time. Uh, um, uh, Have you ever, like, you know, have you ever just been really bummed taking down a Christmas tree? (laughs) I'm trying to think of, like, real-world scenarios where you build something uh, only to unbuild it a short time later. Uh, right? And like a Christmas tree with toys, you have at least the satisfaction of like smashing it. You know what I mean? You can like throw your Lego X-Wing fighter against the wall, but, uh, like a Christmas tree, you know, like everything has to be taken off very carefully and wrapped back up in tissue paper to be put in the attic, you know, in the little Rubbermaid containers in the attic for another year. Um, the, the Christmas China has to all go in the dishwasher because we wash this shit once a year, whether we eat on it or not. And, you know, go back in the tub and, uh, you know, I have to heft it up the uh, ladder into the attic. Not that I'm bitter or anything, but, uh, right, like, it, it seems like Christmas seems like the, the, the just the best example of futility, of futile activity. God, I'm the Grinch. Yeah, no, but I I think that's a very good example. It's because no, because you're you're not because like you recognize that. I mean, you're precisely not the Grinch unless this recognition makes you then want to destroy it, right? That um, that that the the way that the other way that you take down a Christmas tree is that you burn it and then you don't have a Christmas tree anymore. <laughs> you know, um, and and that's but what I think what's interesting about Gossip Girl is that they. They are just constantly – I mean I actually really like this metaphor because they are constantly assembling and disassembling and then reassembling their relationships right. um, into different configurations. Well, if you think, I mean if you think of the parties as the, as the kind of robots or as the, you yeah. know, as the task, right? Like sure. every week you sure. assemble – like Nate has to give instructions every yeah. week for where the bar is going to be put. And the bar is just going to be taken down at the end of the night, you know? And whatever, yeah. you know, whatever has happened, all you know is that next week someone's going to have to decide where to put the bar again yeah yeah no and i think that that this this kind of um yeah i I, and i think what's interesting is that right now like the 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 characters are at different stages well they're all at relatively low points um i I think they've now all reached at like low points with with respect to like their the futility the futility condition uh that they are in um and that you know as we say I mean, I think Chuck for a long time has been in this kind of search for meaning, right? That's been the, like, post-Blair Chuck. That's, like, the last season's worth sure. of, of and Chuck, And search right? for meaning is kind of Byronic, right? Like, he's, you know, he's out there kind of pushing the boundaries of experience. I actually, like... To, I, I, <laughs> by, by Byronic, I actually thought you meant, like, a new word that meant bisexually ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've, I think we've created a new term. <laughs> a byrony. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, um, isn't, isn't that like, I feel like by, byrony has to be somehow related to non-oriented sexuality, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the, it's the, like, the quality of self-regard that the non-oriented, uh, that the non-oriented fu- fucking teenager has about themselves. Yeah. Or, or as Brittany put it in, in a recent episode of Glee, talking to Santana, who, the, uh, who they're now apparently dating, uh, if you're single and I'm single, we mingle. <laughs> there, that, was your, that was your Glee fix, Glee Addicts. I hope you... Yeah, see, we, we still talk about Glee. Yeah, there uh, you go. Uh, we, we, we glee it up. Um, we glee it up. Um, but that's like, like, uh, Chuck, well, I was just going to say, Chuck is oh, like this. Just... Okay, you go. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, on on the Byrony, uh, on the Byrony, um, that Chuck did actually um, in the episode about uh, the book about about Inside, uh, sort of mentioned at one point. I am a bit disappointed that you didn't make me gay, right? And there's like uh, the previous episodes uh, in previous seasons where Chuck does kiss the dude, right, um, on a dare from Blair. Um, so there's there's definitely not a small amount of Byrony. Of that kind, um, but but go on, go on to your uh, the the uh, the other the the b b ironic. Uh, the um, that he's he's a kind of I want to relate him to like Byron or to Blake, you know, uh, or the, like 
what the merry pranksters or something the like the lsd the psychedelic people that is to say he's he's looking for meaning through sensation right through um through personal experience and and serena who has no shortage of personal experience is looking for meaning uh in a slightly different way through like moving from being an object to being a subject by by stepping out of a kind of uh a kind of traditional gender role as a muse or you know what or what have you how you know however you describe her uh and more into um uh, I, you know, and more into being kind of a free artist of herself or being a, you know, being a subject, uh, able to kind of constitute her identity in, in words. That is to say, she's kind of, she's kind of taking up the pen, uh, with all its kind of like phallogocentric implications, uh, and, and kind of take, tra- taking the pen from, uh, from Dan, right? Yeah. The, the, um, the the limitation of that mode i think is that like she's imitating the dominant masculine mode of self representation right that is to say she's she's being herself the way a man is himself at least in the representative world of gossip girl um whereas the the it seems to me that the slightly more liberated thing to do would be to to sort of find her own language with which she can be be uh herself Right. So you're saying that like, right, because it was which was actually I mean, hey, to throw a bone to the Glee people a little more. That was the the fundamental paradox in Glee. Right. It's it's a it's a show about identity, but it has all these, um, you know, highly processed, very highly produced pop songs. Uh, That is to say, you kind of you um, you have an alphabet of a very sort of saccharine. Uh, debased materials with which you can constitute your glorious identity. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, I think that's very interesting. Is that like Serena's blog will be very similar to Dan's book, except it just doesn't have like you know uh, uh, bad pseudonyms um, uh, for and bad these bad ciphers for all of the characters, right? Um, uh, huh. So. Well, yeah, and well, I think that's interesting because I think Dan himself is also in this kind of futility condition, right, where his, like, book moves up the bestseller list and then off the bestseller list, right, um, in the course of this episode. Um, and it's weird. I don't know where that puts Dan. I don't know if they've, they're ending that arc. But, I mean, this, you know, the montage at the end of this episode has a lot of this finality kind of across the, um, uh, you know, kind of across the board. Um, for a lot of the characters. Well, it's like, I mean, you know, it's really interesting looking to a list for a sense of how you're doing, right? Like, have I moved up or down the list? And, and it's kind of like, they all do, they all do that. And Gossip Girl is the list, right? To a certain, uh, um, you know, to a certain amount, uh, uh, to a certain extent, right? That, that like, oh, am I on the, am I in the top 10, uh, this week, I wanted to point something out though. Like, as a New York Times bestselling author, Dan's income is non-trivial. Uh, far, far better than the the ten thousand dollar advance check that Vanessa. Sent. Well, yeah. What do you have to move? I mean, what what's the kind of like like numbers that you have to move to be at, uh, at like within the top ten on the New York Times bestseller list? I yeah, I don't know in terms of I don't know in terms of units. No one. It's such a kind of secretive business. No one actually reports that. It's not. Uh, oh, really? So it's not like I, I, I just didn't. I never even realized that because I don't follow them. I just kind of assumed there is some kind of. So it's not actually. It's and these are not necessarily. So it's a self fulfilling prophecy or a self fulfilling statement. Like these are the best sellers, and so then they become the best sellers. Yeah. Well, hold on. Maybe the like, internet has the answer. Has I mean, is it is it this. is it based on empirical fact? Um, yeah, I mean, they have research. I think they, they do researchers and things like this, but it's not, but how that, that actually aggregates into a list is not necessarily transparent or straightforward. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, so there's a case study that I find found on, uh, by Googling for it, uh, of a, uh, Nonfiction book, nonfiction book that sold twenty thousand copies in its first week and a hundred thousand copies in the first uh, month, um, in order to make the number one spot on the on the Times bestseller list. So we're not talking about. I mean, we're talking about 
niche numbers. We're not talking about like mass culture numbers, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, that 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 that's realistic based on you know who would we would be expecting to buy you know inside. Um, but if yeah, you, I mean, if you look at the names on the New York Times bestseller list, and I used to do this, I used to do this every week. I've not opened the New York Times book review in in years, I think. But um, I used to like right out of college when I was convinced that like this is what it took. And well, actually, we should talk about media diets a little later. Um, but uh, I I would read the the book review every week and I. I would like puzzle over the bestseller list and try to like see the trends and things like this. And the names on the bestseller list, the book bestseller list are names that, you know, you know what I right. mean? Are names like Stephen King. And so if he's, um, it, if he really is cracking the New York Times bestseller list at number nine in, in his book's first week of release, he's not just doing interviews on, on NY1. You know what I mean? He's on Good Morning America. He's on the, the probably the late night talk shows because he's young and good looking. He's, you know, so he's, he's a bigger celebrity and he's actually, uh, he's actually kind of getting attention in a wider sphere, in a kind of mass media sphere, um, not the kind of bespoke media sphere of the Upper East Side. But there's there's no sense of that, right? There's there's yeah. a sense that he's still hung up on, I don't know what Serena thinks of him, and y- you just want to say like, uh, you know, you got you got bigger fish to fry, right, Dan? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a a, a good point. He's also and probably I mean- out earning at least his father. The art dealer, right? Uh, Turn uh, slash trophy husband. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's, I think that's interesting, and in some ways, it's it's actually a relatively unbelievable. I mean, also they then like you know conveniently move him back off of the list, and it's over, right? That's kind of where he is at the end of the episode. Is like, oh, the book is dead, and like that doesn't. It's very weird. It's so it's like they they what they do is they kind of project the way the gossip girl works, um, and where where the way that their society works. Um, into onto the New York Times book review, where it's, I feel like these things are not, but the New York Times bestseller list, and I feel like these things have much more inertia than uh, you know. The, if if you move to nine, I don't think you just drop back off. I mean, obviously things fluctuate, but I feel like I don't know. I th- I feel like it's a little too convenient, um, and and is is um, like you say is actually. I mean, it's one of the few times that they try to make the world of Gossip Girl have an, uh, you know, and a, a meaningful intersection with like the the pop culture broadly defined. And in fact, that's something that's, that's something that's happening throughout this season in some way um, that I think is kind of of interesting. Um, in that you know, Dan has a book that now purports to be a bestseller. Um, you know, Serena's working was working in the movie industry. Um, it's it, I, presumably um, the Spectator is a it's a website, so it's you know it's covering New York, but it is you know, presumably national in scope. So, um, sort of like New York magazine. Um, and so, and, you know, and then you have like N plus one and, um, vulture blog, uh, featured here. And so, um, you know, that, that there, it, it seems that these people are engaging with, you know, the broader, the broader popular culture, but it's in ways that are not, that, that they're kind of presuming that their power within those spheres kind of, moves out in the same way, right? It's just very odd rather than there being, I don't know. It's, it's odd. It's, it's, it's that the, they they kind of, what it's, it's kind of presuming that the, this interface between the, the 1% and the 99% is in the way that it looks to the 99%. Wow. Like that, like that, it's like as if Nate, like really like, like would like, like, look, you know, pop open vulture blog or something like that. You know, like, I feel like the, the actual interactions are a lot more of the, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that, the, the, that it's this odd break from the kind of opaque relationship driven, um, uh, relationship driven, um, machinations, uh, that are typical of gossip world. And then all of a sudden, all of these people are now just playing by the kind of, you know, they're, they're inviting the New York media to their party and they like, you know, are carrying what they say. And so I, I, I think that, you know, Diana is a very different force than from, from gossip girl. And, and I mean, I guess there's a question of whether like the, the spectator will like 
firmly like pull the world of Gossip Girl into this hybrid that is somewhere between the Upper East Side and the popular culture, or whether they will just, or the, whether the spectator will just get kicked out. She, I mean, she seems to yeah, right. I I understand what you're saying, and I I agree with you on a theoretical level. But in this episode, she seems to be acting like Blair. You know what I mean? Like doing the same kind of manipulations, like and 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 also doing that the thing, true. Doing the doing the thing that that frustrates me most. Um, about Gossip Girl in its plotting, because I think, you know, I think these are good writers and they can do better. It's uh, it, refusing to take the long view, right? Like, does any character in Gossip Girl ever have a plan that lasts beyond the next 60 seconds? You know right. I mean? there's, 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 like, there's very little strategy. Here. Like they're they're not like look, thinking about extended form games to right. use the logic of game theory. They're like looking at like all right, here is this interaction, here is my play here, rather than sit, thinking of of strategic interactions as iterated, um, and or as having these multiple moves and like looking down the equilibrium path, right, um, and backwards inducting. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, what was the specific example that you were thinking of? Uh... I was thinking of Charlie and Nate, really. Like, you know, if someone shows up out of the blue and, you know, wants to get busy with you, the, you know, this is a sign that something is up. We've learned this over and over and over and over again in the world of Gossip Girl, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or, you know, if, if, there, is an, if there is a change, uh, if there is a sudden change in the environment, or, you know, you can't, you can't trust people, or you can't trust outsiders, you know? These, seems to, these seem to be the rules of the universe, and they're, they're remarkably consistent over time, and yet the characters haven't learned how to... They haven't learned the rules of the game that they're playing. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that would be dramatic irony. That would be, you know, practically Greek, but um, I, it's not dramatically convincing, you know? Because... Uh, because making the assumption that not everyone is as ruthless as you are um, after a while is stupid. I mean, I think it connects to this kind of this, the, the, some of these themes of this desire for wh- whether it's self-actualization or meaning or something like that of like, well, like, yeah, that is what always happens, right? That, that, that robot always gets taken apart, but this is different. This robot is different. Um, sure. And this is the robot that I'm going to get to take home. Um, and, and, and like this robot I am building, I mean, right. So it's, it's like, it, it is a, it, I, I, I doubt there were, I mean, it'd be interesting if there are any, like, you know, it, it, it depending on this, you know, obviously lab experiments have very small sample sizes, but it'd be like, I, I imagine if there were anyone who just kept building those robots, they would probably be diagnosed with some type of personality uh, disorder of some kind um, or something like there'd be like, you know, it would cease being a, a, they would like shunt them. And obviously this is not how experimental laboratory experiments work, but if it is like, you know, they would be shunted from the like behavioral uh, economics uh, bracket into the like okay what is wrong with this person bracket not yeah. not wrong but into you know what i mean clinical into the clinical psychology into bracket. the clinical psychology bracket because that's i think that the behavior patterns that we see here show this like um this 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 extreme refusal to learn and maybe it's not maybe it's not like a a behavioral disorder but i mean i think at the level of which you see with with which there's very little learning it does start to like strain like the 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 limits of what is both narratively and kind of like social psychologically like feasible i suppose i mean i suppose you have to think of it on a continuum right theoretically without reference to gossip girl that is to say the point of behavioral economics is that we are not rational economic actors right but there has to be some measure of how much wouldn't that be interesting? Like an EQ, like an economics quotient, right? That is like that's mm. a m- measure of your personal amount of deviation mm. from. Uh, I suppose it would have to have subscores because there are like different. There are sort of different biases yeah. um, that, yeah. that Dan yeah. Maley yeah. writes about in Predictably Irrational. Sure, sure. Which you can also get on the waffles, by the way. Um, right, there are different biases. So you, but like, uh, how far do you deviate from the, the classical economics, uh, model of, you know, rational, rational action with perfect information? 
Yeah, um, definitely, definitely. I mean, you can break it down to like how much, how far do you deviate from maximizing? Right. Like, how far do you deviate from kind of like yeah, like kind of costless information processing? Right. Um, how do you how how far do you deviate from having like consistent, well ordered preferences? Um, and then so you have these sub scores, and then those could aggregate into an overall like like economics quotient of like how much you are i mean they they kind of call it i mean i you know, the, the, so how much of a homo economicus are you right um versus a you know these other various variants and some that are you know very just have certain types of um biases or are or influenced through other things yeah. so that's very interesting um but we you know hijack we kind of hijacked the conversation about about new york um you know new york New York media. And I think like it's it's important that this thing be in New York because New York media is kind of a special case it because is. of how intensely self-regarding it is uh, and how intensely self-regarding New Yorkers are as New Yorkers. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because yeah, I guess in some ways say about that. But. Well, you know, because I, I mean, I and I missed parts of this episode, but like, I mean, one part of the New York media like establishment, the, the or and and by uh, the New York kind of almost like internet media establishment, the blog establishment, so the, the establishment too, that really wasn't here at this party. Um, is is Gawker right? right? Um, and I feel like that is part of the role that um, that 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 the spectator is playing, right? Is in part a a proxy for a Gawker media type empire, which is like focused on like because like Gawker does have this like intense New York focus on New York society um, and media culture and all of these things, um, and and so there I think that their their absence is is telling. In part because that the, the spectator is is playing this role in in some way potentially. Well, that is that is to say that's what that's what the spe- you're saying that's what the spectator is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a kind of gawker. Yeah, that's my read. That's my that's my read, and just sort of thinking it, uh, talking I mean, about yeah, it. We haven't prepared this, so there may be a lot of ums and stuttering. But like, can we distinguish between the project of Gossip Girl, the blog within the show, and the project of Ga- of Gawker? Well, sure. Or, I mean, I mean, do you want to distinguish from the project of Gawker and that, and then the, I guess the next one is the project of the spectator, right? Right. Yeah, uh, which we don't, I mean, well, we got a little bit of a speech. Um, we got a little bit of a speech about it um, from Elizabeth Hurley tonight. But the the uh, the the thing I took away from her speech was that she was oriented uh, towards competition with you know peer. Yeah publications and not necessarily toward a journalistic project sure, that sure. has yeah. to do with you know changing the world or changing a certain part of the world well i think that's right i mean that's that nails where i was going to go with this is that i feel like the project of gawker and of the spectator is the bottom line right that um and this is something that i think we talked about two episodes ago um that was based on the question of what it what does gossip girl's revenue stream look like and i think that this idea of gossip girl as a public service um as a public service provider um you know puts an angle on this right so when we talked about um when we talked about Gossip Girl. We were talking about uh, and and about her relationship to both her readers and um, and and the Upper East Siders. We talked about accountability relationships that had to do with kind of publicness. Um, and I think that the accountability relationship in the space um, of of the Spectator uh, is you know is is born out in market transactions. You produce a product, and if people don't like it, they will go to um, another purveyor right. of this. right? And, that, and that's a, a form of accountability as well, but it's this very direct and immediate form of accountability because it's you observe, do I like this thing? Yes, okay, I will go back, um, and then they will get more ad revenue, or I will subscribe, or whatever the metric is. Um, and no, then I will go somewhere else. Um, and so I think that the mission of these um, you know that that Gawker's mission has changed over time, in part because you know followed by following the market and and you know mission is, you know it, it's it's it, that that these companies you know these media these these private media companies have rather than being exa- mission driven in the way that a public enterprise is it's they're I mean they're led by corporate strategy 
right? And so you you have some type of um, if there is a vision, it's uh, it's it is an assessment of what vision will like bring the most revenue. Um, and so I think that that is in part the answer of what the mission of, of, of the gawker or the, uh, of, of the spectator is. I mean, so there are a question of, there is a question of what is the mission of gawker right now or what has it been over time? But I feel like that's even less relevant than the fact that these are, these are profit generating, um, enterprises in well, a way that, and that it's gossip. Funny, like, as someone, as someone who like, uh, you know, as someone who runs a website, pays the bills and sees the ad revenue, um, like if if you are really trying to make a profit, get out of the running a website business, you know, get out of running a, a news website and go into, you know, selling iPads or something. All right. I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that we are, you know, overthinking it is, is you know, we're public good producers, right? Like, um, I like to think you know, so. Um, uh, we, we certainly, well, no, I, in, in, in a sense that, yeah, we, we, we're, we're not engaging in such, we're engaging in costly collective action, right? That, that it's not so such, I mean, for a, a time it was costly collective action and that it was like a net financial loss right. for us, um, for, for, for you, um, uh, but uh, but that you know even now that the, it's a revenue generating uh, enterprise, it's not a profit generating uh, enterprise. So right. those who contribute are contributed uh, contributing out of you know some type of intrinsic motivation and some type of account you know set of account public accountability relationships um, or quasi public um, that are you know about these relationships that we have with ourselves that are in amongst ourselves that are in the public sphere and then with our our anonymous or semi-anonymous listeners and um and readers right um and and so we're more like gossip girl than we are like the spectator oh there you go there you go are you um uh, do we bring more uh more joy into your life i mean do we provide a public service for you do you want to not be a semi-anonymous listener or uh, or reader of Overthinking It? Well, what you should do is uh, write into this show at tftpodcast at overthinkingit.com. You should follow us on the Twitters at tftpodcast. You should uh, look up our Facebook page, which is linked from the show notes. It's I think it's still a complicated URL. I don't think it has a... Uh, I don't think it has a, a fancy one yet. Um, you know, you should do it because you are homo economicus. You yes. Know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. I do. You know, people like, you know, very rational gay bashers should be called no homo economicus. <laughs> so there... <laughs> I have nothing there. Go on. You were doing so well. You should do it because you are a homo economicus. You should do it because you uh, care about the expressive utility of of telling the world that you like these fucking teenagers. You should do it because we do not impose a futility condition and take your iPod away from you uh, after you've listened to this episode. You should do it for the Sheely. You should do it for the Rather. But most of all, you should do it for these These fucking fucking teenagers. teenagers.